of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham, Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat Judah and his brethren, and Judah begat Phares and Zarah of Tamar, and Phares begat Ezron, and Ezron begat Aram, and Aram begat Aminadab, and Aminadab begat Nason, and Nason begat Salmon, and Salmon begat Boaz of Rahab, and Boaz begat Obed of Ruth, and Obed begat Jesse. And Jesse begat David the king, and David the king begat Solomon of her that had been the wife of Uriah. And Solomon begat Rehoboam, and Rehoboam begat Abia, and Abia begat Asa, and Asa begat Josaphat, and Josaphat begat Joram, and Joram begat Uzziah, and Uzziah begat Jotham, and Jotham begat Achaz, and Achaz begat Ezekias, and Ezekias begat Manasses, and Manasses begat Amon, and Amon begat Josias, and Josias begat Jeconias, and his brethren about the time they were carried away to Babylon. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconias begat Salatiel, and Salatiel begat Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel begat Abiud, and Abiud begat Eliakim, and Eliakim begat Azor, and Azor begat Sadok, and Sadok begat Achim, and Achim begat Eliad, and Eliad begat Eliezer, and Eliezer begat Matan, and Matan begat Jacob, and Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. So all the generations for Abraham to David are 14 generations, and from David unto the carrying away of Babylon are 14 generations, and from the carrying away unto Babylon unto Christ are 14 generations. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. And uh, we just look to God to bless us as we uh, consider the, the uh, genealogies of the Lord Jesus um, this evening. So thus far in our study, we have thought about the genealogies of the patriarchs, and we went back to Genesis in order to see that. Um, then last week, we took a very brief um, tour through the patriarchs of the kings. And all along the way, we've been observing lessons about God uh, and his grace, uh, lessons about God also in his uh, judgment. Uh, you think of those uh, genealogies of the patriarchs where it said, and he died, and he died, and he died. We thought about that, the monotony of the record. But we thought about his grace as well, the, the dignity that he conferred upon mother, motherhood. And uh, we saw last week the, the grace of God in taking up a man like Judah. And the point of this series is to ask the question, who do we think we are? Because when in our Western world, we look back at our family tree, we, to look, uh, we, we have to go back in our family tree. We have to look at, uh, you know, my parents and then their parents, parents and, and so on and so forth. But we go back in the Bible. We can start wherever we like because we have all the records that we need. We can start at the beginning and then just work our way through to a man like uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, for example. Um, or a man like Judah, we can we can do that. We don't have to go back. We can go forward. But whenever we do this in our in 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 the uh, in our Western world, as we as we uncover details about our ancestors, it starts to change who we, who we think we are. Maybe we find some royal blood uh, in our family, and and we think, wow, you know, we have a claim to fame there. Or maybe there's a there's a difficult story of somebody who committed something terrible, uh, and we think about how. Uh, how, how that may have impacted the family. Maybe somebody married beneath their station and may, maybe that impacted the family. There are all sorts of interesting stories and in family histories 
Um, interesting to people who are interested in genealogy is perhaps not interesting to uh, the majority of us. But nowadays we say, well, we say we're self-made people and we don't think that, that history has an impact on us, but it does. It does have a shaping influence on us. Although, as we shall see at the end of our, um, because I intend on concluding this series this evening, as, you, as we shall see at the end of our study this evening, ultimately it's what God makes us, it's who God makes us that makes us what we are. Our history has an impact, but the cross changes all that. The cross draws a line under everything that our history might have uh, made us. And so who we are perhaps isn't so much uh, uh, decided and defined by our past as by what God has done in our in our present and what God will do in our future. So this is the, uh, the sort of the, the, the idea behind this series. And tonight I want to look at the genealogies of the Lord Jesus um, from Matthew's gospel. I want to think, first of all, about the unlikely genius of this account. Uh, there are some very peculiar things in Matthew's uh, record here, these names. And it's either reckless, uh, a reckless author that doesn't know his stuff, or it's genius. And of course, we know it's inspired by the Spirit of God. So we know that this is actually uh, genius. We want then to think about an unimaginable grace. We want to think about what M Matthew has to say um, by including some names here, which we wouldn't expect to see. Uh, something of the un unimaginable grace of God. Then we'll think about unmistakable judgment. There are some omissions here uh, in the record, and I would think that that is to do with God's judgment in the uh, the histories of these families. And then finally, we'll see something about the unchanging responsibility of each generation um, to, to get to grips with the word of God uh, and live out a life that is pleasing to God. Um, and then finally, um, we'll wrap it up uh, by going back to Romans 8, which is where we began uh, our series, and just think about who, who, who we really are. Uh, never mind our ancestry, who, who are we now uh, in Christ? Before I, uh, so un before we start by thinking about the unlikely genius of this account, I just want to make a few comments about the genealogies of the Lord Jesus in general, because there are four gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they all have something to say about the, the um, uh, the, the genealogy of the Lord Jesus, if I can put it like that. If we were to go to John's um, gospel, he starts like this. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. So John traces the Lord Jesus's genealogy, if you like, back even before Genesis, back into eternity as the one who is God. And then he says in verse 14, came and tabernacled, came and dwelt amongst us. Isn't that, one, isn't that wonderful that the Lord Jesus's history, if, if I can use these time bound terms to describe uh, God, goes back into eternity. And that's what John, that's what John's interested in telling us, that he's the he's the son of God. And as such, his 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 uh, his history has has no beginning. Really, it goes back into eternity. Now, when we come to Mark's gospel, he actually makes no record of the Lord Jesus's uh, beginning at all. He, he begins this way. He says, um, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's how he begins his gospel. He, he doesn't begin by talking about the Lord Jesus' beginning at all. 
And the normal line on this, of course, because we often say that Mark is the gospel of the servant, is that, well, a servant, you know, a servant has no records associated with their history. Um, they have no rights. They have no ancestry. And that would be uh, a fair point to make. But but Mark doesn't start like that. If you recall from our series on Mark, um, one of the things that I labored um, and I hope I didn't labor it too much, but I, I labored the fact that Mark says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. Well, what is Mark saying then in, in not giving us a beginning? Well, it's a little bit like John's gospel. The first thing that he has to say um, about the Lord Jesus and his relationship to anyone else uh, are the words of uh, God himself, who at his baptism, um, uh, said, thou art my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. We have nothing about what Mary or Joseph said, um, Mary in particular, Joseph obviously his uh, sort of guardian father. Uh, but we do have something about what the son of God's father said, thou art my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. In fact, it's interesting because the first mention of the Lord Jesus' family in Mark's gospel he says this, who is my mother? This is the first mention of his family. He says, who is my mother or my brethren? Well, surely he knew who his mother was, his earthly mother, his, his mother Mary. But then he goes on to say, whoever shall do the will of God, my, uh, whoever shall do the will of God, the same is my, um, I think it's my brother and my sister and my mother. That's interesting, isn't it? That's his first mention of, of, of family. He ties it back. Um, to the fact that whoever's whoever's doing the will of God, those are the people um, who are in my family. And it, it doesn't mean that obviously in earthly terms, but it's a spiritual lesson that as the son of God, blood blood relations are not important. Neither should they be um, in in the in the uh, experience that we have as as believers. Um, that the, the attachment that we have to the Lord Jesus and those that do the will of God uh, is 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 far more important that's that's John and that's um, Mark Luke traces the Lord Jesus's genealogy back to Adam but he waits until chapter 3 to do that you remember the, the whole history of, of um, John the Baptist that comes first and what's interesting is that chapter 3 where the genealogy of the Lord Jesus is traced all the way back to Adam proving that the Lord Jesus was truly man, is right up against chapter four, where the Holy Spirit records the, the uh, journey of the Lord Jesus into the wilderness, which proves to us, because he, he withstood the tempting of Satan, proves to us that the Lord Jesus is not just a, a true man, but he's a perfect man. And so how wonderful that is this evening, that the, the one who is in heaven is a man who fully understands what it means to be human with all its confines and its troubles, yet without sin. Uh, maybe that's the point that Luke is, is making um, in his uh, gospel. But what Matthew does, um, we read it in verse one. He traces the Lord Jesus's genealogy back to David. The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, before he gets into the names, he traces the Lord Jesus back to David. Um, 
I don't know whether you read the, the blog post that Steve uh, wrote. It, it's worth reading that in order to, to understand the context in which Matthew is writing here. Steve made the point in that blog post um, that a large proportion of the Old Testament is occupied with the character of David, the historical record, massively, overwhelmingly um, occupied with, with David or the ancestors of David. Last week, we look at the Chronicles. It's all about David's family, David's, David's line. The Psalms, many of those were written uh, by David. And so the, the poetic history of the nation goes back to, to David. And in a sense, the whole of the, the Old Testament is leading up to David and then coming away from David. In a sense, you could see David as, as the, the essential character of the Old Testament. Um, and so when Matthew writes to Jewish readers, right, this, this gospel was written to, to Jews, he wants to show that the Lord Jesus has the right to the throne of David. He's from the family of Judah which we saw from Genesis, uh, shaped itself up and with God's intervention became the, the kingly tribe, the royal tribe. And so that's what Matthew's point is. He wants to make it very, very clear to his Jewish readers that the Lord Jesus uh, he can trace his genealogy back to David. And David is all over this record. Let me just give you one example. See in verse 17, and I, and I read the account um, to try and give this sense. In verse 17, read what it says. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. And from David unto the carrying away from Babylon are 14 generations. And from the carrying away unto Babylon unto Christ are 14 generations. So three sets of 14, which would normally add up to 42, but he's double counting David. This is... Uh, <laughs> You, this is a you, you could say, well, this is Matthew, he's a tax collector. You know, he, he spins his numbers a little bit. But if you look at the historical record, there were more than 14 generations in some of these sections of history. So Matthew has a theological purpose in choosing the number 14. And um, some Jewish scholars, I, I find it difficult with my Western mind to, to, to find this compelling, but some Jewish scholars would, would tie the number 14 to David using a very well-known mechanism to them that they use elsewhere in their literature. Um, be that as it may, what we can't deny is that this record is all about taking the Lord Jesus' history back to David. It's there in verse 1. He's there double-counted in verse 17. Uh, and so this is all about the fact that the Lord Jesus has the right to the throne. There's coming a day, isn't there, when the Lord Jesus will come back to this earth, not come back to the heavens for his church, but come back to this earth for Israel. And he will set up a, a kingdom in the nation of Israel, in Jerusalem for a thousand years. And he has the right to do that. He won't, he won't exercise just Godhead sovereignty to take the throne. He has the right to do that as a, as a man, as a son of David and here, we have uh, the evidence for it. So that's Matthew's intention. Now let's think about uh, the, some of the points I made earlier, starting with the unlikely genius of this uh, account here um, in Matthew 1. 
Now, of course, anything that uh, is inspired by God has the mark of genius uh, on it. But at first glance in this record, there's an awful lot of detail that doesn't add up. I've already explained that the math doesn't really add up, uh, not to mention that Matthew is just missing out some generations because he's he's got a purpose, as we shall see in, in, a, in a while. So so the, the number 14 is uh, is in, is a number that, that, that Matthew's using specifically for his own purposes. Let me just make a few other points, though, about this. First of all, why would Matthew break with tradition here and start including women in the record? Did you notice we read four women and they're not they're not repute, uh, women of repute, women of good reputation? Why does Matthew omit several kings? He leaves four kings out. And why all the we read some. The names are written here. Um, they're obviously anglicized. They're, they're English names. This is, this is just a little bit of a sidebar. When Matthew wrote this, he probably drew from the Greek translation of the Old Testament because the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. Um, I know some of you know this, but I know some of you don't. So I'm covering it uh, for those that don't. So the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. Moses would have authored it in, in Hebrew, in the Hebrew they used back then. But between the end of the Old Testament and the New Testament, Greek culture came in. And a Greek translation of the Old Testament was written so that people of the group of the day in which the Lord Jesus was born could read the Old Testament more, more easily. And so it could be um, spread as well into Gentile nations. Now, Matthew is probably using the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. And that's why the names here, um, you know, Judas in verse three um, and and Tharmar rather than Tamar okay but so it makes it a little bit tricky to read and sometimes I read the Old Testament Hebrew anglicized names and sometimes I didn't because I didn't <laughs> I didn't I don't know all the names here so it's a bit bit tricky to read um, but the point we're making is that Matthew does if we look very carefully here he omits he includes four women which is breaking the tradition and he excludes four kings all right now, this isn't looking very good, is it? This isn't looking like, like a very good historical record, Matthew. This looks like the work of a reckless author. And we've already pointed out that Matthew counts 40 genera 42 generations, when in actual fact, if you count it carefully, he only is 41, despite counting 42 at the end in verse 17. And apart from uh, all that, is this really the way to start a story that you don't want people to put down? If you were writing a story about the Lord Jesus Christ, how would you start it? You think, well, how do I get my reader hooked? How can I get them on the edge of their seats? And you think, well, I know what to do. I'll, I'll start with a list of names. That's not really how we would start a, a novel or um, a record that we want people to be, be, be hooked in by. It's either genius or it's a reckless way to start your book. But in the end, these, these things that I've mentioned, four things I've mentioned, they're precisely what makes this such a masterpiece. It's not your average genealogical record, and it certainly wouldn't stand up um, in terms of the way that we build our genealogical records today, which is why we might project that expectation on it and say, oh, no, this is not a very good record. He's including names that shouldn't be there. He's excluding things that should be there. But we've already seen this in our study of, gene of genealogies of the, of the patriarchs and the kings, that God, God leaves his mark on all of them. No human would lay them out the way that he does. There's a definite sense with them that, that, that they are historical, 
but actually there's a bigger purpose with them that uh, that actually makes them more thrilling to dig into from as at least that's the way I see it. So let's take um, some of those points that we just mentioned here and think about uh, whether this is actually good or bad. Is it, is it, and as I say, I think, it's, I think it's brilliant. I think it's genius. Look at the first verse, the book of the generations of Jesus Christ. That word generation there is in English, but it's the same word that's used in Genesis 2, chapter 4. Sorry, chapter 2, verse 4. So as a Jew reading this, the book of the generations of Jesus Christ, my mind immediately goes back to the beginning of the Old Testament. And Matthew knew that. So this is a, a clear nod here from Matthew to the beginning of the Old Testament. That's the way the Old Testament began. It began with God, I know. But it, by the time you get to chapter two, verse four, where the, 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 the stories, the genealogies of, of, of Adam are, are spoken about, it's the same word. And that wouldn't be lost on the Jew. It's lost on us, possibly, but it wouldn't be lost on the Jew. Now, that's genius, right? To start a book which, by God's providence, becomes the first book of the New Testament with, with, that, with that kind of phrase. Um, he then includes some unfamiliar names, which, we've, which we'll deal with. I'll skip over that because I've already mentioned that. Um, and then we need to understand that this actually is a familiar way to start a book. We've already seen this, that the, in Chronicles, although that wouldn't be an appealing thing to our Western minds, you can start out with a list of names. Uh, you're allowed to do that. That's the way the Chronicler starts the book of um, Chronicles. And actually, if Matthew is going to write to Jews who are waiting for the Messiah, and he's going to say that the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise in verse uh, 18, and he's going to start talking about the Lord Jesus as being the king in chapter two, and he doesn't include this list of names, then his Jewish readers aren't going to be interested because they want to know, okay, so you've said there's a king going to be born in Bethlehem. This is chapter two, Matthew, chapter two. What about his ancestry? So in actual fact, this is the only way to start your gospel if you're writing to Jews. You have to start with a list of names. And so although perhaps to our minds, this is a, uh, in probably a, a foolish way of starting uh, your account of the life of the Lord Jesus. This is the only way if you're a Jew. You have to prove that he uh, is the king by reason of his family history. So that's the unlikely genius of this account. Um, and um, of course, this cements this record of the Lord Jesus. It's, it cements it in history. Um, look at verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 and from David into the carrying away from Babylon. What does that remind you of? Uh, it reminds you of what we read last last uh, week in Chronicles, where the chronicler does the same thing. I think it was chapter nine, was it? Uh, he, he goes back. He says, that's all the family history leading up to the exile of the of the kings from Israel into Babylon. So what Matthew's doing here is, is brilliant because he's picking up. The thread that was let that was sort of let go in Chronicles and is carrying it forward. And again, to the Jewish mind who knows his Old Testament well, this is uh, just what you expect to happen. So far from being um, a reckless, haphazard, poorly put together account, uh, this is just uh, what the Spirit of God intended. Now let's think about the unimaginable grace which is is conveyed um, 
in this passage. Um, we've seen in our study on the genealogies that the record focuses on the fathers, right? The genealogies of the patriarchs, genealogies of the kings, it's all about the, the fathers, no, no mothers. But Matthew here, he breaks with convention. He's about to introduce the promised seed of the woman. Remember Genesis 3.15? Um, Thy seed shall bruise, shall, uh, I'll, I'll read it because otherwise I'll get it wrong. I'll get it back to front and upside down. Genesis chapter 3.15, he says to the serpent, I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. The Jews are still waiting for this this one to come. And so Matthew now is going to, as he talks about Mary. Who is the woman through whom the seed, the seed comes, he's going to introduce four other women. Because it was through these vehicles that God brought the seed of the woman. It's through women. It's men may be uh, the, the, the heads of families. And uh, they dominate the records that we've looked at thus far. But it's through women um, that the seed would come. But why these five women? Look in, uh, look in verse three. We've got Tamar there. We saw her last week. She uh, prostituted her body with Judah. Second, we have uh, in verse five, uh, Rahab. She also uh, made business of selling her body. Um, and then third, we have Ruth in verse five. Boaz begat Obed of Ruth. She was a Moabitess. She wasn't supposed to be allowed to be uh, in the nation of Israel. And there's a lot to that, which we can't get into this evening. But fourth, we have the wife of Uriah, uh, verse six. Now, she's not actually mentioned. I know that it's the wife of Uriah. But the inference is that we're talking about well, it's clearly that we're talking about we're talking about a woman. It's the wife of Uriah. And who was she? Bathsheba, who committed adultery with David. So Tamar, Rahab, Ruth and uh, Bathsheba, not women of repute. Ma Matthew doesn't actually mention the scandals behind these women. He doesn't have to. The Jewish reader knows full well the, 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 the stories of these these women. And you might think, well, surely Matthew putting these in, it, it sort of complicates things because this is supposed to be the seed of the woman who's going to uh, who's going to deal with 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 sin. And uh, you think, oh, you know, that this line needs to be pure. And but you see, God has to work with uh, human unrighteousness. He has to work with humans in all their inadequacy and their dysfunction and their sin. God works through us, not because of us, but in spite of us. And that's the nature of God's unimaginable grace is that he takes up these these individuals, you and me included. This is this is who we are. Uh, we're now part of the family of God and God's not working through us because of us, but in spite of us, in spite of our failure, in spite of our um, missteps. Aren't we thankful for this, that the really unimaginable grace of God? If we just dwell for a moment on what we would be, who we would be if it was not for the grace of God. 
we'd be we'd be absolutely nothing. We're, we're not much more than that now, except as we shall see later, we we are something by His grace. But we would be absolutely nothing. Remember what Ruth said to Boaz. If you read in the account of Ruth, uh, her conversation with Boaz when she realised he was taking interest in, in her, she said to him, "Why have I found grace in thine eyes that you should take knowledge of me, seeing I am a, I am a stranger?" It was beyond her imagining that Boaz would take an interest in her. And you remember what Paul says um, in Ephesians. He says that we, you and I, because we, we weren't born Jews, we were, we were Gentiles. Um, we are strangers from the, the word in the King James is Commonwealth, from the, 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 the group of families that were in the nation, that were part of the uh, covenant of Israel. Um, but now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were afar off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. Isn't that wonderful? And what does he say? He says that um, uh, looking later on now, therefore, verse not, uh, Ephesians 2 verse 19. Now, therefore, you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. These four women here, which if you want to do a study on, you could do, um, as we said, that they're, they're not who you expect to see. Why didn't he Why didn't he mention Sarah? I mean, she made mistakes, but she wasn't as bad as women who women who sold their bodies for men's pleasure. Uh, why didn't he include Rachel, Rebecca? Weren't, weren't they deserving to be included in this record? They're not the women that he mentions. He mentions four women of no repute to make the point that that, that God is, is gracious and he has worked with what he has had to work with. And he's not worked with wonderful, he's worked with wonderful women for sure, but he's not worked with flawless women and flawless men. He's had to work with flawed women and men in order to bring the son of David into the world. So that's an un, uh, unimaginable grace. But now we think about unmistakable judgment. One of the unexpected things we find in Matthew's genealogy is that he omits four men. Now, pay attention because this is, is tricky. And if you don't get it, it's OK. If you just take away the fact that there's four men missing. Uh, but I know that some of you are sitting there thinking, really, Lloyd, are there four men missing? Has Matthew really left four men out? And so for those of you that are um, interested in the details, stay with me. Remember, there are three sets of names here which Matthew refers to in verse 17, from Abraham to David, from David to Babylon, from Babylon to uh, unto Christ. Yeah, three sections. In the first set of names, there are no omissions. In the sect, from verse two to six. In the second set of names, from verses seven to 11, there are four omissions. In verse eight, Asa begat Josaphat. You'll need to look at your Bible because you can't, uh, get your head around this if you don't. Asa begat Josaphat. Josaphat begat Joram. And Joram begat Uzziah. Um, in my margin, it does. It tells me uh, what I should know already, which is that is. Um, Ahaziah. OK, so in verse eight, after Joram, if you look at the actual genealogical records, we would expect to read Ahaziah, Joash, 
and Amaziah and then Oziah. So there's three missing names there. OK, in other words, um, Oziah was the great great grandson of Joram. That makes sense. <laughs> so Matthew's skipping generations. Now, actually, we have a, a precedent for doing that, um, but we don't have time to go into that tonight. So Matt, you are allowed to skip generations in, in, in Jewish records, so long as you, if you were forced to, you could prove um, an unbroken line. That's the important thing. But you're allowed to skip generations because we can, and, and there's precedents elsewhere in the genealogical record in scripture for doing that. Um, so three kings omitted. Now, verse 11, Josiah begot Jeconias and his brethren about the time they were carried away to Babylon. Um, in verse 11, Josiah begat Jeconias. This time, only one generation is skipped. Jeconias was Josiah's grandson. His actual son was Je Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim. All right. Now that that's that's there. Okay. Even if it's difficult to see, the point is. These names are omitted. Now, why is that? Well, I'm only going to deal with Jehoiakim. And I'm going to infer from Jehoiakim why God might be inspiring the omission of four names and the omission of these generations. Jehoiakim. Why is Jehoiakim mentioned? Why is Jehoiakim not mentioned? And we skip over. We go from uh, we go from Josiah to Jeconiah and we miss Jehoiakim in the middle. Why? Jehoiakim was so wicked that one of the prophets of God that lived at the same time called Jeremiah, he spoke a curse against Jehoiakim. And he said that the the line of Jehoiakim, the blood descendants of Jehoiakim, were ruled out from sitting on the throne of Israel. Jeremiah 36, if you want to look it up later. So then how would the promises of David? Remember, this is now Jehoiakim was one of David's sons great 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 grandson um if jeremiah is saying that there's a curse on that family line how are the promises of god to david that he would have a son who would be messiah how would they be realized well the curse from uh from 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 on jehoiakim really only applies to jehoiakim onwards and in Luke's account, although we're not going to be looking at that tonight, we're going to finish the series here. But if we were to look at Luke's account, the Lord's genealogy is traced back through Mary's family, not via Jehoiakim, not even via Solomon, who was one of David's sons, but by another son of David. So on Luke's grounds, the, um, the Lord Jesus is still a son of David, even if he's not a son of Jehoiakim. So he's still got a right to the throne of David because he's a son of David. Secondly, um, Matthew makes it very clear that when it, in verse 18, when as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph before they came together, he makes it very clear that I think Paul may have mentioned this in some ministry on a Sunday morning um, a few months back. Matthew makes it very clear that the Lord Jesus's conception took place before uh, Mary and Joseph came together. And had marital relationships of their own this was a miraculous conception it would be a virgin birth and so however you look at it whether you have to rely on luke's account or whether you just see here that mary that um uh, matthew is pointing out that it was a virgin birth 
albeit from a human mother, a virgin birth, a, a virgin, sorry, virgin, a virgin birth, a miraculous conception, the curse of God on Jehoiakim, which caused him to be eliminated from the list, has no effect on Christ because it was a virgin birth. So he doesn't trace, or Jesus doesn't trace his his blood his bloodline, if we can say that, I think we can say that, back to uh, to Jehoiakim. And of course, the emphasis in verse 18 is when as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, she was found with child. Joseph isn't really um, in the picture uh, per se because it was a miraculous conception. Um, and, and because the record is, is, is very much heavily on Mary's involvement. And what a delightful thought this is, that the judgment of God, although it fell on David's line, the sin of Adam, if we can apply it now, if we can extend this uh, beyond just David's line, we think about the curse of, on Adam's line, the sin of Adam could not reach Christ. Whether to eliminate Christ from the throne or to make him insufficient on the cross. Now, the, the, the miracle of it all is that Paul says in Galatians that Christ has become, uh, that he has, he has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. So Christ did, in a sense, bear the curse, but it doesn't remove from him the ability uh, to be our redeemer on the cross, nor the king on Israel's throne. So the point to make here is that this king is omitted. And I think that explains why the other three kings are omitted as well. And because of time, we'll just have to um, leave that there. There are other things I'd have liked to have said, um, but we'll leave that there. Um, one other practical point. It, it is a wonderful thing, of course, that although God omits names from these records, and he did that last week in, uh, for, in, in the Chronicles, that our names will never be wiped out of the Lamb's book of life. Um, we've seen God's grace here. We've seen God's judgment. But by the grace of God, our names can never be taken out of the Lamb's book of life. I want to make that clear. Um, although God takes the liberty of doing that from sometimes. And uh, we'll, we'll leave that there. Uh, our names can never be blotted out of the record. Now let's conclude our little study here on Matthew 1 by thinking about the unchanging responsibility that is on every generation. The point I want to make here is really a practical point um, and it'll be a very brief one. Every family, every, every generation is responsible to God uh, before God for getting to grips with the word of God, the truth of God and living out a life for God. Now this isn't something that I observed um, I, I'm uh, grateful to a, a really uh, a, a man from several centuries back called Thomas Fuller, who observed this. Again, you need to look at your Bibles again because it gets. Uh, we're looking at names here. Look at verse seven. Um, verse seven. Reboim, which is Rehoboam in, in the Old Testament, begat Abia. Now, Rehoboam was a bad father. If you know your Old Testament, you know that he was a bad father. And Abia was a bad son. And Abia begat Asa. 
Now, again, Abia was a bad father, but Asa was a good son. Verse 8, Asa begat Josaphat. Now, we know that Asa was a good son. He's also a good father. And Josaphat was a good son. And Josaphat begat Joram. Josaphat was a good father, but Joram was a bad son. So look at the order. I probably should have had this on a whiteboard slide. Bad father, bad son. Bad father, good son. Good father, good son. Good father, bad son. Now, if you did have that on a whiteboard slide, you'd, quite, you'd see my point quite clearly. And Thomas Fuller put it like this in his old English kind of way. Um, I see, Lord, from hence that my father's piety cannot be my father's piety cannot be given to me. That's bad news, because if my father was a pious man, a godly man, then I could inherit that godliness. But I see also from this list of names that act the actual godlessness is not always is not always passed down to the next generation. That is good news for my son. <laughs> what does Thomas Fuller mean? It's a bit tongue in cheek in that, if you understand the old English. What he's saying is that. If you had a good father, it doesn't mean that you're going to be a good son. But if you had a bad father, it doesn't mean you're going to be a bad son. Each generation is responsible before God for getting to grips with the word of God and living out life for God as he intends. You cannot look to your father and say, well, you were a bad father. And your son cannot look to you and say, well, you're a bad father. And neither, neither is it a guarantee that if you're a good father, you will have a good son. Each generation is responsible for God, for getting to grips with the word of God and living out life for God. I think that's a very practical lesson. Because we've thought in many respects about the the way that generations and this was a thing and it is still a thing today that generations do pass down a legacy. But by God's grace, that legacy, whether it is good or by God's grace, that legacy, if it's a bad legacy, if it's a bad thing, that the generation is passing down. We look at the circumstances around us today and we think, you know, what's going to happen? What 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 legacy are we passing down as a, as a nation to the next generation? But you see, by God's grace. He will have a purpose in that. And one generation doesn't have to say, well, we're scuppered as a generation spiritually because of that generation. No. Now, this shows us here, this list here, this list of names we've referred to in verse 7 8 shows us that we are each individually responsible. So that concludes our little study there in um, uh, Matthew 1. Just come now to uh, Romans chapter 8 for a conclu conclusion um, of the entire series. We began uh, here in Romans 8 uh, when we started looking at the um genealogies of the patriarchs and i want to bring us back here now again romans chapter 8 and verse 28 and we know that all things work together for good to them that love god to them who are the called according to his purpose for whom he did foreknow he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren.
Paul at this point in the book of Romans has already started to answer the question of who we are as as the people of God. In Romans chapter one, he says that we are saints, which means we are set apart for, for something special. We are set apart for God's purposes. And so irrespective of everything that we've looked at in this series, and I, I think there are practical lessons that we've drawn out. In a sense, the cross draws a line under everything. It draws a line under our past, whether it's good or bad. And we are now set on a course to be something extremely special for God. Who do we think we are? If we don't have the view that God has of us, we will we will fall far short of his intentions for us as God's people. Whether that is to think less of ourselves than God thinks because of what he's done in us by grace, or whether that is to think more of ourselves than what God thinks. Um, the flesh wants us to think that who we are is something that is scarred, fallen, flawed, or the other extreme, wonderful, you know, uh, just just we got all, got all the tricks of the trade and, and, and we're some sort of heroic person. The flesh will always cause us to think we are one or the other extreme. Either a wonderful person, irrespective of what God has done, or a terrible person, irrespective of what God can do. But what we read here in Romans is that because of what of, of, of our sin, we're all on the same level. There is none that does good. We're all on the same level. We're all sinners and we all need to put our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus. And when we do that, we become saints. Romans six tells us that we are people who should be living out our baptism. We should be living as if the old who we are, the old Adam in us is gone. It's dead. That's who we are. Romans seven points out that if we're struggling, might it be because we are um, either either putting legal obligations on ourselves, the law, or we're trying to serve the flesh and we'll never we'll always struggle if we wrestle between those two things. But by the spirit of God, the indwelling spirit of God, we can be who we should be. And so in a sense, we can just tear up the genealogical records. We can just forget about our family history in this respect, that the cross is a leveler. It makes us all saved by grace. And what God's ultimate purpose for us, as we see here in Romans 8, is that we might be conformed to the image of his son. And we might be conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus. This is why Paul goes on to say um, in Galatians chapter one. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. So he's dead, but he's alive. That doesn't make sense. Yet not I. Oh, but I'm actually not living. But Christ lives in me. Oh, so I am actually dead. It's Christ that's alive. And yet the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not frustrate the grace, grace of God. Some of us, all of us, we all frustrate the grace of God because we don't, I don't 
live out who I am. I am crucified. And it's Christ that lives in me. Lloyd should be decreasing. Christ should be increasing. It's less about Lloyd and his his what happened yesterday or what happened a week ago or what happened a month ago or what happened before he got saved or what happened in his family history. It's more about Christ living in him by the spirit of God, which is Romans chapter eight territory. And so come what may, all things work together for good because we're being conformed through good and through difficult circumstances. We're being conformed to the image of Christ. This is who we are. This is who God wants to be us to be. And if in every in every waking moment, I know as I close here, I know in every waking moment we don't we don't uh, live the crucified life. We live the life that Lloyd is still alive and he's alive with all his problems. But if only we realize that really it's Christ that's living in us and it's Christ that needs to grow and have more room and space in us. And it's it's that we would be conformed to him. Um, then no matter what our history may conform us to our present uh, position before God and our future uh, prospects in God's plans uh, that we might be conformed to him. That's that's who we are. And I think this is a wonderful uh, uh, way to end our series on an elevated note. Uh, this is who we are. And it should change the way I think it should change the way I behave. If you think about Romans 12, which she goes on to speak about, it should make us those that ultimately want to lay our lives down and uh, be, be transformed by the renewing of our mind to be more like the Lord Jesus. So I trust that this series has been um, a help as we've thought about the characteristics that characterize the faithful people in the past that should also characterize us now in 2020. Only they can be perhaps more enhanced because we know something of the grace of God in the coming of his son, the Lord Jesus, the son of David, into this world and, uh, and of his grace in giving his life for us in order that we might be conformed to his image.